Hello, deserving listeners. It is just me today. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and I'm also a professor. And this is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle, or the Psychology in Seattle podcast, if you will. And today I thought I would respond to an email from a patron of the podcast, uh, Lauren, patron Lauren. She's a a patron of the podcast because she went to patreon.com and became a a patron, which is the most potent way to prove your dedication and and, uh, preference. What other P words can I come up with for this podcast? So doctor, uh, she writes, uh, uh, Dear Professor Dr. Honda, <laughs> that's always my my favorite um, name. It's super narcissistic, but um, I don't know, it just has like a really uh, funny sort of ring to it. Professor Doctor, um, she goes on to say, I'm getting my PhD in physics and would really love to hear your take on the struggles in academia. I've heard some alarming statistics on mental health issues for PhD candidates, Also, I lost a colleague who struggled with depression this year. End of email. So I'm really sorry, patron Lauren, that your colleague, I'm guessing this is a a classmate in your PhD of physics or someone in your, you know, close to you in your field and had completed suicide. Um, That's always a sad uh, thing to lose someone and also that someone would be suffering to such an extent. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to go over some stats and and also just my own thoughts because I've been in graduate school as a student or as an instructor for the past 22 years and and have a lot of thoughts on this. So uh, the main study I'm pulling these stats from is from Lipson et al. 2016 Journal of College Student Psychotherapy. Journal of College Student Psychotherapy. I didn't even know that that journal existed, but um, what a great focus. So some stats in here. Over 90% of campus counseling center directors report an increase in the prevalence and severity of psychological problems in recent years. So again, they some study looked at, I think this is a study that Lipson was uh, referencing, that a uh, when they surveyed a bunch of counseling centers on college campuses and asked the directors to say, you know, are, are the, is the prevalence and or severity increasing, decreasing, or staying the same in terms of psychological problems among the student body. And 90% of the directors said that there's an increase in the prevalence and severity. Now, of course, this is anecdotal. So, you know, it's just asking a director, what's your sense of things? But honestly, I could totally see that this anecdotal question is reflective of reality, given the increase in pressure and the increase in competition and the increase in the notion that you have to be your best. I, when I was growing up, there it, I, I was born in the 70s, and I, there was pressure to, to be good at things, but not nearly the pressure that we see today. For example, I was absolutely, in my family, it was assumed I was going to go to college. You know, it was like, well, of course, you're going to go to college. That That's just, that's what kids in our family do. And when it came time to prepare to go to college, my family, we didn't do anything. 
In fact, I don't think they even knew about the SAT. I think I, uh, you know, like the standardized testing that you take before to go to college. I think I just signed up for it because I was like, well, I better, I better do that. I didn't take any SAT prep courses. Uh, my parents didn't even know what score I got, nor how to interpret the. Sc- I mean, there was no attention paid to that. It was just like, well, uh, you know, go to college and do well. <laughs> you know, whereas now, uh, I, the, when I the kids I see who are in families that are saying, "Look, you're going to go to college," there's there's just a ton of you know, internet searches, and you might even hire a coach to to help a kid with getting better SAT scores. And I certainly, ha- I only had one friend who was like this, and he was actually, uh, he, his parents, actually him too, immigrated from the from Vietnam at the end of the Vietnam War. And they were like that. I just, I remember my friend, he, his parents were like super, um, into that. <laughs> they wouldn't let him go out on the weekends because he had to study for the SATs and blah, blah, blah. But that was, o- that was only one out of, you know, dozens and dozens of people I knew growing up. N- none- but now, so, so there's just this, this notion of, look, unless you do this, you're not going to get the best chance. And there's also this sort of notion in our society now that unless you reach your fullest potential in a particular domain, you, you're really failing, right? And I mean in a particular domain because there's a lot of different domains in life other than academia, right? You have love life, you have friend life, you have fun life, you have uh, recreational life, you have family life, you have creative life, you have outdoors life, you have health, you have, you know, there's a lot of different domains, but for whatever reason and in today's middle-class world, it's all about grades and all about the college you go to and all about, you know, getting to that goal. And, um, and it's, it's misguided in a lot of ways, uh, mainly because when kids actually graduate from their four-year university, all of that work or much of that work will be for nothing. Now, maybe all of it will be for something. You know, if if you're planning on being the best heart surgeon in the world, then yeah, you you, you got to start early. But most people, once they're 25, 30, they'll look back on the sort of things they went through in college and think like, man, I, I think I put too much pressure on myself. I could have probably slowed down a little bit and relaxed and not, you know, given given the fact that I now work in, you know, in for Amazon or something, the fact that I, uh, you know, the fact that I got like perfect grades in at my four year university probably didn't matter anyway. So there's just this, this different cultural thing. So my guess is, is that that increases anxiety and depression and other kinds of issues, because uh, stress can cause all sorts of problems. Um, that results in an increase in college students having an increase in mental health issues, which is reflected in this 90% of campus counseling uh, center directors reporting an increase among the student body. Okay. Another stat here is that one third of students in this study met diagnostic criteria for a psychiatric disorder, meaning that they qualified for some diagnosis in the DSM, which is higher than the average for for the people, for people in their twenties, it, it's something about twenty to twenty-five percent. So, you know, it's a pretty significant jump to, to a third, right, to thirty-three percent. And 
you know, this is a strange finding because it's it's like why we we would understand why marginalized groups like LGBTQIA people would have an increase in mental disorders because they do because of the way society treats them, right? It also makes sense that Native Americans have an increase because of the way society treats them historically and culturally and economically and, you know, uh, police-y. You know, there's just all sorts of practical reasons why certain groups of people would have an increase in, in the prevalence and the rate of mental disorders. But for college kids and for graduate students, you would you wouldn't necessarily think that because in general, these are privileged people, right? Not always. There's certainly a bell curve. There's certainly very marginalized individuals who are among the ranks of college students and grad students. But but it's a little weird. And so what it does is when we when I look at this data point that graduate students have a you know pretty significant increase in the rates of mental disorders is that it's a reflection of this problem I've been talking about, this this pressure that we put on people who are in college or the pressure. Yeah, it, it's pressure we put on them and it's and we also force them to internalize that pressure. So they put that pressure on themselves, which is probably the worst part of it by the time they get to graduate school. You know, it's just a, it's just evidence for me that young people in college are just way out of balance and they're they're super focused on academic markers of achievement and at at the cost and the expense and the sacrifice of all that is good in life such as love and attachment and fun and friendship and giving to the community and you know just all the wonderful things that life is about that um you know it go to anyone on their deathbed, go to any 85-year-old, 95-year-old, and ask them what is good in life? What do, they, what, do they, what do they think all of us should be focusing on? I'm going to take a guess and say that not a single one of them would mention an increase in grades. <laughs> I don't, I, not a single one of them, I'm guessing, would say, make sure your your resume has that extra thing on it, you know? I, I'm just going to venture to say they're not. What they're going to say is love your your family, love your neighbor, love yourself. Uh, take time to smell the roses. Give, be be good. Uh, find meaning. Uh, you know, sure, have a career that you enjoy, but there's a lot more important things in life than than getting that perfect grade. And and so that's the other thing I just want to point out that I think I, th- I feel like a lot of young people uh, don't see uh, well is that they interpret their performance in a particular course in graduate school as a indication of how successful they're going to be in their career. And I tell people this all the time in my program. I say, I tell them, look, in my class, I'm going to grade you on how well you write these two papers. There's a paper mid-quarter and there's a paper at the end of the quarter. And how well you write these papers will determine your competency rating in this course. And But understand that if you get a bad competency rating by me in this course, that does not mean you are going to be a bad therapist. 
that the performance in this class is only loosely connected to your performance as a professional. Because when you work with therapists, when you work with clients, you are not writing papers with these, with these clients. You are talking to them. And, it's, and because it's hard to evaluate competence in your ability as a therapist before you are a therapist – we have to measure you in some other way, which we've decided in our program is primarily through writing. And, and that's just how it is. And, you know, we've given a lot of thought and this is what we think is the best way to go. But if you get a bad grade in my class or a good grade in my class, good competency rating in my class, understand that that may or may not correlate with your future success in this profession. 10 years from now, you might be the best therapist on the planet, literally, and you might have failed my course. <laughs> so, so I tell people that I'm just like, and I, and no matter how much I badger my students about that, uh, they still will not believe me. They'll be like, well, sure. You're just saying that cause you're just trying to get me to relax, but surely, you know, uh, if I do poorly in this class, that means I'm a failure in this field, right? And it's just not true. Um, if you're in, um, uh, if you're a graduate school in biology or graduate if, graduate school in business, that your success in the field may or may not uh, correlate with your grades in a particular course. Now, if you're completely failing out of of classes there's a pretty good chance you're not going to succeed in the profession for a number of reasons that I won't go into right now. But, but the way that people tend to look at these things anyway, um, just, just as an example, uh, getting away from papers, when I teach a class on applied family therapy and there are uh, students who do role plays in the class and I observe them and I will comment on their work. And there's a wide variety of skill that I see because these students have never seen clients before. They're not at internship yet. And they come from different backgrounds. Some are in their mid-20s and some are in their mid-60s. And some have worked in other professions that are close to therapy and some have not. Some are extroverted and some are introverted. And so there's a wide variety of, of beginning skill level that I'll see. Some people, when I observe them in this class, I say, whoa, like, you're, you're ready. You're ready to go. Like I would be confident in you graduating right now and practicing. You're, you're that good, like already, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're ahead of the, the rest of, you know, your classmates. And then there are other people at the end of the bell curve that I'm like, whoa, you've got a lot of work to do. Now I don't say it like that to them. Of course, what I say is I, I just give them feedback about what they need to work on because it's okay. And, and I've seen people at the low end of the bell curve, by the time they graduate, they're good enough to practice. And because they've gone through internship and a lot of supervision and more classes and stuff. And so, but when, when I, when I, whenever these role plays happen in front of me and the, the students turn to me and they're like, okay, you know, how did I do? Because they, you know, they do this thing in front of me and then they, they turn around and they're like, how did I do, how did I do? And I, I have some positive and some negative feedback. And, and 
some of the students will tell me later, it's like, yeah, when you gave me that negative feedback, I felt like a complete failure. And I just, and I, I don't, and I, throughout the quarter, almost every time we meet, I try to mitigate that anxiety by telling them explicitly, look, when I give you negative feedback, you're going to feel like a failure, but understand that you're not. And understand that the fact that you aren't the perfect therapist yet shouldn't surprise you, (laughs) you know? You know, uh, guess what? You don't know what you're doing yet because you've never done it before. So why do you think you should? There's this very illogical, weird thing among graduate students, students that I experience where they believe that they should already be good at something that they've never done before. It's bizarre. Uh, And I try to get my students to laugh at themselves for this. And it, and throughout the quarter, I'm like, like there's a there's a sort of beginning of the quarter lecture that I do about this and there's a mid quarter and a you know toward the end of the quarter that I do and you know one demonstration that I do is I that I did last last quarter actually was I had all the students stand up and then I had them rate themselves and and then stand on the back wall from good at math to bad at math so I had People who are self, you know, self-proclaimed good at math would be on one end. People who are midland at math would be in the middle, and people who are bad at math at the other. And then I took the person who was good at math, the best person, and the worst person, and then I had them do some long division, and, and it was like a race to see who would do it first. And the person who was better at math did the long division faster. And so I, so I had him sit down and I said, okay, so is the person who is bad at math, uh, is, is she a failure? Is that person a failure at math? Should they feel terrible about themselves? Should, they, should, they, should their ego go through the floor? And of course, everyone's like, well, no. And it's like, well, why? And they're like, well, because uh, that person hasn't taken a math class in a while. Or that person doesn't pride themselves on uh, being a good math, uh, uh, you know, long division person. Um, But mostly because that person was older and hadn't taken a math class in probably 30 years or something and didn't remember how to do long division very, you know, in that way. And so, so I said, okay, so you all understand that. You know, just because some now, if we took that person who was bad at math and put that person through two years of training in math, do you think that person would be better? Yeah. Do you think that person would be perfect at math? No. They would need twenty more years of education and practice to be, you know, closer to perfect in math. Okay. So you guys, the fact that you don't know how to do therapy yet should not surprise you because you've only had like a year of education and no experience that in, in a field that is extremely complex and 30 years from now, you will still be learning and still be developing. So please stop pressuring yourself to be good at something you don't know how to do yet. And please stop being narcissistic and believing that you should be good at something before you ever gain the competence to do it. It's, it's a very weird thing that I see in graduate students, and it, and it, it's, it's, it damages their mental health. 
Okay. So other stats from this study, from the Lipson study, 2016, the majority of the students who had mental disorders were not receiving mental health services. So, and untreated symptoms uh, were seen to become more frequent, more severe, and treat, treatment resistant over time. So I just, I just want to highlight this right now. People in, the, people in the United States, privileged graduate students, intelligent people connected to resources, can, there's, a, there's a college campus mental health center probably on their, you know, as they walk to classes, they walk by the mental health center. Even though all they have access, even though they have all these things, and I don't know the specific access level, but we'll just say they're at the higher end of access and the higher end of likelihood to seek therapy. The majority of students with mental disorders are still not getting treatment and not seeking treatment. And I just have to say, what is wrong with our society when that is happening? Let me put it in medical terms. Let's say that a majority of people with diabetes were not seeking help for diabetes. Or a majority of people with, with bad eyesight were not wearing glasses. Or a majority of people with, with broken arms were not going to the hospital. We would go... What is wrong with our society when we have 60, 70% of people with broken, broken arms and, and a lot of pain and, and noticeable bends in their bones saying, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor for sure. I, that, I mean, who, who, you know, I'm not crazy. I, you know, weak people go to the hospital when they have a broken arm. That's ridiculous. Now, certainly there are people who say that, but let's just take a guess and say that it's a very small minority of people who do that. But in mental health, for whatever reason, uh, you know, because we're stupid as a society and we stigmatize the silliest of things. Okay. So also... Mental health in early adulthood, uh, and I'm, a, you know, I'm sort of the study. This study basically assumed that grad students were young, which of course is not the tr- not true, particularly in psychology. But, but mental health in early adulthood. So for those young college students, um, mental health in early adulthood is linked to several important outcomes, such as social connectedness, academic performance, academic retention, and future economic productivity. So, in other words, these young people and graduate students are suffering from mental disorders at a greater rate because of, you know, possibly because of the pressure they're under. And the majority of them are not seeking help. And because they're not seeking help, this results in a lot of bad things like reduced academic performance, which of course makes sense. It also results in reduced academic retention, meaning that students will drop out because they're suffering or their grades are suffering or something. And if they got treatment, presumably many of those people would not have to drop out. Also, their future economic productivity, meaning how much money they make, you know, and how, how they contribute to society, all those things suffer, which, of course, makes logical sense. There's also been a number of studies looking at the different rates of mental illness among different types of graduate students and it appears from the limited studies I found that mental health grad students are more likely to suffer from a mental disorder, but not drastically different from other majors, but enough to see a signal. 
it's so it's hard to know why that is. It's hard to know. It's like, do, do mental health graduate students, you know, psychology students, counseling students, marriage and family therapy students, social work students, psychiatry students, are these students under more pressure, which causes more mental disorders? Or did they already have a higher prevalence of mental disorders at application to the program because their mental disorder actually piqued their interest in mental in mental health as a profession, uh, which is uh, somewhat my case. One of the main, one of the main factors, you know, out of the f- top five factors, I think that uh, influenced my decision to become a therapist when I was in my mid twenties was because I had suffered from from panic attacks. I had had like I don't know four or five panic attacks in my early twenties that were very upsetting to me and. I thought, well, maybe if I become a mental health worker, I'll figure out how to fix it. And and it, I was right, actually. As I learned just a little bit in graduate school about anxiety and panic, I almost instantly cured myself of the panic. <laughs> um, panic disorder is actually uh, fairly easy to as long as it's not related to PTSD or something, it's it's pretty easy to uh, reduce the symptoms uh, quickly with um, with some knowledge. Anyway, so what are the factors in graduate students' mental health? Uh, these are a lot of spec. These are all speculations. So these these are just my ideas. So again, the pressure that students go through is is one. Um, also, another reason is because when you enter graduate school, for the first time in your life, you are not the smart one in the class. Meaning that when you were in fifth grade, it, you were probably the smart one, like the, like the top of the class. When you were in high school, you were you know, at least one of the smartest kids in the class. When you're in college, you, you got pretty good grades and it wasn't, wasn't super hard for you. And then when you go to graduate school, well, now you're among all the smarties of all, you know, and you're no longer the smart one. You can no longer coast. You have to, you have to compete with people who are just as dedicated, just as driven, just as perhaps privileged or maybe even more privileged than you. And so it's, so that can increase the anxiety for students. Also, there's a there's a because of this anxiety there's a there's a lot of competition that I see among graduate students. For example, uh, in in graduate school uh, when I was getting my doctorate, I I was older, you know, I I started when I was 39 and I was also a professor in a master's program. I was an instructor. So, I kind of I I wasn't too worried about getting my doctorate and I wasn't too worried about classes because I I knew what it was like from the other side as an instructor. And I don't know, I just felt confident in my ability to, to at least, you know, pass the classes and, and, and graduate. And I was already in my career. And so it didn't really matter how well I did in, in school. And so when I was in school, I didn't really feel that anxiety the way that my classmates did. And I also didn't, um, I didn't feel in competition with anybody. Cause I, like I said, I had already, I was, I was, I was already in the career I wanted to have 
even before I got my doctorate. So, you know, I, I already was in private practice. I was already teaching at Antioch. I, um, I had the podcast. And so getting the doctor, it was just sort of like this, this like, um, continuing education thing <laughs> that I went through. And so when I was with my classmates, I would try to build community with other classmates. Cause I, I thought one, wouldn't it be nice if we felt like a community and two, we could actually help each other out. You know, you could read my paper and I could read your paper. We could give each other a quick feedback before we turn it in. You know, we could catch each other's proofread, you know, proofreading errors and maybe add some suggestions. We can really enhance each other in this way. And so a number of times I would reach out to classmates and I'd be like, Hey, you know, let's, let's exchange papers. And, and people would always be like, Oh yeah, sure. Let's do it. And then, so I just shoot in my paper, you know, I just be like, Hey, you know, here's my paper. Uh, let me know what you think. And please send me your paper. Cause I'm really curious to see what you've written. Cause I, I kind of want to learn from you about what you're absorbing from this course. And I want to give you feedback. Well, Every single time I did this, no one ever sent me their papers. Not a single classmate sent me their paper. I would, I would just volunteer my paper to them. <laughs> and they would not reciprocate. Not once did a single person reciprocate to it. Maybe one time, actually, now I think about it. But I remember just being baffled as to, and I would bug them. I'd be like, hey, you know, send me your paper. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to give you feedback. And blah, blah, blah. And, and now I, I can't, I can only speculate as to the reason as to why I suppose there are reasons that aren't quite great for me. Maybe they just didn't care about my feedback or, um, maybe they felt pressured into the exchange and they never wanted to do it in the first place. But, but to me, the whole thing stunk of competition or of anxiety or something, you know, just this thing of like, well, if I give you my paper, you're going to get ideas and then that will enhance your ability to write your paper, which will make it so that you will outperform me in the class. And all the classes we had were not on a curve, so it didn't matter. Like if we all got perfect scores, we all got perfect scores. It didn't, it didn't matter. But it also uh, stunk of anxiety of like, well, my paper is terrible and I don't want another student to read it. And I'm always like, who cares? You know, like we're can't we be friends? Can't we? I don't know. So, so even in a program that's not graded on a curve in a program that didn't really have any competition, you know, it's not like you're trying to be the next hot lawyer or something, you know, like in barely legal, the movie and the play, which I've seen, I've seen two productions of the play, barely legal, the musical, barely legal. Um, uh, and you know, in that situation, it's like, who's going to be the, the favorite of, of the class and, and whoever becomes favorite gets a awesome career. Well, in psychology, at least in my program, it wasn't that way. Anyway, my point is, is that there's this, this weird, anxious competition that I've seen among students that I think is, it, it, it adds to the pressure and to the, the lack of support and the feeling of, being in danger because other students could screw you over and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Also, another factor in graduate school anxiety and mental disorders, I think, is because once you're, once you're done with graduate school, you're, you're done avoiding a career. <laughs> once, you're, once you graduate with that graduate degree, 
thus begins the rest of your life. And, and you have to enter the job market, which is, for some people, very scary, uh, particularly in, in particular fields, right? If, if you've been, if you, in your BA, if, if you got an English degree and then you got a graduate degree in creative writing or something, and then you're, and then you graduate and you're, you're about to graduate and you're just thinking, what am I going to do with these degrees? You know, I, I can't, do I have what it takes to become a New York, uh, you know, times columnist? Uh, it's it's a very daunting anxiety to people, and I think that adds to the stress. Also, different programs and different professions have different cultures in the training programs. So there are some training programs that uh, the culture of the profession or the tr- or the culture of that particular school is such that the pressure is just a lot higher. Ask anyone who's been to multiple graduate schools, and they'll tell you, "Oh yeah, this graduate school felt much safer than than this graduate school." Another factor, I think, in graduate school's mental health is asshole instructors. There are instructors who are just jerks, who are, you know, at the, at the most, they could be like psychopathic and sadistic, which I've seen, or they just lack social skills, or they just have a policy that they just don't care about people or something, but uh, so that can add to to the pressure for sure, particularly in graduate school, because when you're in graduate school, your your relationship with your professors is much more intimate, and you're much more dependent on your professors than you are when you're getting an undergraduate degree. You know, when when I when I was when I got my bachelor's from University of Washington. I barely knew any of my professors. All I had to do was just pass my classes and everything was fine. Um, Another factor, I think, is that for some graduate degrees, particularly in psychology, your personhood is much more on the line. So if you're getting a graduate degree in accounting, for instance, you know, it, it comes down to your ability to perform the task of accounting or to theorize about the task of accounting or something. But when you enter the field of psychotherapy and you're in graduate school, your personhood, who you are is on the line to it, or at least it's perceived that it's on the line. So if you have, you know, dysfunctional thoughts or if you can't articulate yourself very well, or if you have personal issues of any kind, there's this, false notion that somehow that indicates that you are a failure as a student and as a psychotherapist. Also, in my perception of my field and perhaps in other fields, there's just too many things to accomplish in graduate school. There's this notion out there in society that once you graduate with a master's degree or a doctorate degree, you are you are an expert. You've you know, there's this notion that you go to school, you become trained, and then after you graduate, you're good to go. And you just, you proceed to do the job, right? It's like, I want to become a plumber. So I take a vocational class on how to do plumbing and I do an apprenticeship. And then once I'm done with that, I have, I have all the skills and all the knowledge that I need for the rest of my career and no more education is required. Well, in psychotherapy and psychology, the 
that's just not the case. There's just too many things to learn. Part of it is because psychotherapists are kind of required to understand a lot of different topics. And there's just no way that even in a, a doctorate, you're going to get even as much as 5% of the knowledge that you really need to know. And so because of that, students at the end of their graduate degree are are freaking out because they don't feel confident. And they they're looking at their professors and saying like, my professors are confident in X, Y, and Z, but I don't feel confident in anything, let alone X, Y, and Z. And so therefore, what's wrong with me? And so that's another bit of pressure. I'm guessing that's true in other professions as well and other doctorate degrees. Also, the mounting debt issue. Graduate school is expensive. And uh, for some, they they aren't working very much or, or at all. Uh, that was me and my master's. I wasn't working barely at all. And the mounting debt can't adds to the adds to the stress, right? It's like, so now I'm, you know, now I owe a hundred thousand dollars and it's gaining interest and I better get a job afterwards. What if I don't get a job? You know, who's going to hire me? Cause I feel like I'm incompetent, blah, blah. So that's, that's a lot of pressure too. Another uh, factor I think is that by the time you're in graduate school, you're at least in your mid twenties, if not, if not much older, but if you're in your mid twenties and you're, or you're in your early thirties, you're, you're watching your friends, people, your age, build careers, build families, because they didn't go to graduate school. They got their bachelor's or maybe even didn't get their bachelor's and they went into a career and they got married and started having kids while you're 30 and you're still mid graduate school and you haven't earned a penny yet in your field and you you wonder if you ever will and it it's there's this comparison problem that happens i think for people for younger people in graduate school if you're older in graduate school like you're 45 in all likelihood you have already had a career of some sort and or you're you just don't really compare yourself in that way people who are 25 to 35 in my experience in middle class uh, mainstream America tend to compare themselves heavily to other people their age in a, in a very self-deprecating way. There, I, there's a lot of clients that I've talked to 25 year olds who will be like, I feel like a complete failure because my friends who are my age have careers and I don't. And I'm always like one uh, that's unusual because you you must have extremely fast tracked friends because most twenty five year olds will not say that they feel you know great about their the current state of their career. Um, but even if it was true, who cares? You know, you're twenty five. You're young, man. You've got a lot of years ahead of you, and uh, why beat yourself up about it? You know, if you want to start building a career, go for it. If if that's what you want in life, but. If every day you wake up and look on Facebook and feel like a piece of shit, like there's, you know, it's just not rational, you know, but anyway, so there's a lot of that. Also in graduate school, the way that graduate schools are often designed, there's no time to relax. They basically 
graduates, in, in my opinion, a lot of graduates programs, the professors are, they want their students full attention. And they take it as an insult when, when students don't give their full time and attention to them. And I find that to be stupid and oppressive and terrible. In my program at Antioch University Seattle, we allow students to go at whatever pace they want to. So you could graduate in two years if you went fast, like full-time essentially, or you could graduate in six years. So the six-year plan means that some quarters you're not taking any classes at all. And when you are taking classes, it's maybe one class. So in, in contrast to full-time, which is like four or five classes a quarter. So we allow that. And the reason why we allow that is because why not allow that? <laughs> why be dicks about it, you know? And now I understand some programs have certain economic restraints that means that they can't actually hire that many professors. My program is highly lucrative for the university and because we have just a ton of students, which gives us a lot of flexibility to hire a lot of professors. And then you have flexibility in class offerings and that kind of stuff. But anyway, so I get that, whatever. The point is, is that I know some programs who actually could be more flexible, but they're not because I think they, they want their lives to be easier. And they also just, they want students to be fully dedicated to their education. And by fully, fully dedicated, what I mean is no time for anything else. <laughs> and I just find that to be incredibly oppressive and self-defeating because then you have students that are basically like falling apart at the seams. Um, in my program, I have the luxury of looking at a student that is totally freaking out about workload and work-life balance. And I, I have the freedom to say, look, how about take next quarter off? Just don't take any classes next quarter. Just get your life together. No big deal. All this does is it extends your your graduation date another three months. No big deal. In the grand scheme of your career, you won't even notice that. You're 25 years old now, and instead of graduating when you're 26 and a half, you'll graduate when you're 26 and three quarters, and you're going to be a psychotherapist for the next 40 years. So who cares? It's not a race. And and how wonderful that is to tell a student that, you know, just be like, hey, you're totally overworked. You're not having any fun in your life. You're not spending time with your family enough. You're not exercising. You're not eating right because they're telling me this. You're completely overwhelmed. Take a quarter off. Take a year off. We, we let people take up to a year off from taking classes. Uh, partially because we want to help people succeed and we don't ultimately want people to burn out this early in the game. Um, I, I just basically forced a student last week to take uh, a week off from, from everything. And I just said, look, we're going to talk to your professors. We're going to talk to your internship site. And I want you to, I need you. I, I'm almost forcing you. I can't force you, force you, but I'm very close to forcing you to taking a week off because you're burning out. And I can tell you're completely burnt out. Uh, and you're, which makes sense given all the things that have been going on in your life and, and how fast you've been moving through the program. And I, I'm going to need you to take a, a week off. 
and just relax. And I also said, I don't think you're going to do it because whenever I tell people to do this, they almost never do it from this weird internal pressure to like be perfect and, and push themselves. Uh, but he actually did. He's like, he, he was like, yeah, I probably won't. And then a little bit later, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and he actually just texted me like as I was talking 15 minutes ago, I could see on my phone that he has been really, uh, it's been very, very rejuvenating for him to take the week off. Anyway, so because there's no time for anything else other than graduate school in graduate school, yeah, you're going to see some mental disorders pop up, right? No duh. Another issue, another factor in mental disorders among graduate students is perfectionism. As I've sort of touched on this a number of ways already, but there's there's a fair amount of normalized perfectionism in graduate school that is not helpful. Another thing that I see in graduate school students is racing to the finish line. There's this notion that I've got to get to the finish line as fast as possible. And if I don't, I'm a failure. And like I was saying earlier, it's like I tell particularly younger people, people in their 20s, 30s, I guess even in their 40s, I'm, thinking, I'm saying, look, you've got decades and decades of working in this field ahead of you. What's the difference if you go through the program in two years as opposed to two and a half years? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You know, now I can't tell people what to do, obviously, and I, I give them the flexibility to do what they want, want to do. But I, I try to influence them like, you know, to stop working yourself to the bone for no reason. <laughs> there's there's not there's no point to that. You know, try to have some balance in your life. Well, one of the major things you have to do as a psychotherapist is balance your life out. If you had a client who was pushing themselves in this way, wouldn't you tell them to consider slowing down? Well, you know, practice what you preach. Um, another thing that I see is graduate students, and this is just anecdotal, tend to be on the, uh, shall we say, uh, sort of nerdy side of the of the spectrum. People who like to study, people who like to go to school, people who aren't really super extroverted, you know, with lots of friends and lots of social activities. And so the few social, I'm thinking of a a sort of class or a sort of like subsection of graduate students that I've experienced. So they enter the program with not that much social activity to begin with. And once they go into graduate school and it becomes harder to even find time for socializing, I find that for some students, the the socializing completely ends. And throughout their entire graduate school, they they don't have a single interaction with any friends. (laughs) They might not even interact with their family because they might have moved to Seattle because to come to the program. And so they're just completely isolated. And that's a problem for a number of reasons. Uh, But so... That's another thing I've seen. Also, another thing I've seen is pressure from family. You know, s- some graduate students, they they are the first person in their family to go to graduate school, and all eyes are on them, so they feel a lot of pressure. Another thing I see is not enough support from family. There are people who tell me that their family does not understand why they're going to graduate school in the first place. They're just like, why, why do you want to become a therapist? Isn't that just for crazy people? Or... 
why are you going into debt so much for such a stupid thing? And so that can also add to stress. Another, and the, the last factor I'll say, which again, I've sort of touched on before, is basically a normalization of anxiety. There's this, there's this notion among graduate students and among professors, in my experience, that students should be anxious. And I 100% disagree with that. What, at orientation, when I orient students to the program, I tell them, if at any time you are anxious about your performance in this program, if at any time you're anxious, like you turn in a paper and you're unsure if it's a good paper or not, anytime you're anxious about whether or not you're going to graduate based on, you know, just this weird notion that somehow you're insufficient without any data to support that, I have failed you as, as an instructor in this program. If you feel anxious, I have failed you. So I'm going to put a lot of effort into trying to make you feel less anxious because what, you know, my mission in life is not to make students feel anxious. My mission in life is to make the world a better place in whatever humble, tiny little way I can try to do that. So as a therapist, I try one client at a time to make the, the world a better place to, to have a positive impact on the world. As an instructor, I, one student at a time, I try to make a positive impact on the world. And the hope is, is that those students are going to go on to make a positive impact on the world as well. So all I want to do is help you as a student succeed in the, to become a person in this field who has a positive impact on the world. I will die tomorrow completely happy knowing that I dedicated 20 years of my life to doing that. I am fine. I know that there will be no regrets. I'll be like, you know what? Uh, every, for 20 years of my life, I, I dedicated a good portion of my waking hours to, to that cause. And, and if you're anxious, then that is going to impede your ability to develop as a psychotherapist and it's going to consequently impede your ability to make a positive impact on the world. It might even cause you to drop out of this program and drop out of the profession altogether, which means you'll never be given an opportunity to make a positive impact on the world through your clients. And then you'll go on to teach other therapists so that they can make a positive impact on the world. And so all I want you to do is be as comfortable as possible so that you can learn how to heal other human beings and anxiety is going to get in the way. So I spent a lot of time trying to eliminate that, that irrational, unnecessary anxiety. However, there are programs and, and I would say most instructors I come across, or I don't know, I think things are changing, but I've come across a lot of, let's say half the instructors I come across, they don't agree with what I'm saying. They think, no, I think students are lazy and they need a kick in the butt in order to get them to do the work they need to do. And if that means they feel a little anxious and that means they feel a little anxious, I think they, I think they should be anxious. And there are professions where 
this is an explicit goal, right? When you when you try to weed out certain people, you want them you want all the students to worry that they're going to get weeded out so that the the cream rises to the top and then you can you know learn who who can perform under pressure the best, right? And you know, I'm not going to necessarily evaluate whether or not that's wrong-headed or not cuz different professions have different um criteria i suppose for for that profession but but in general i i think that that i i'll speculate that it is wrong-headed in the other professions as well because when you go to graduate school you probably already really care about doing a good job you know you're dedicating all that time and energy and money you, you you're probably very much concerned about doing well and so we don't as a program and as instructors have to artificially add to that anxiety through our behaviors. And, and honestly, no matter how much effort I put into reducing anxiety, which I have a number of methods that I employ, students will still be fairly anxious anyway. So the, so I'm just reducing the anxiety to a a lesser level. I'm, I'm definitely not, getting rid of it by any means. So in our, in our society, I think, and, and in particular pro- professions, there's this normalization of that. It's just like, yeah, you know, graduate students get anxious and, you know, maybe that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm like, why? why? Why should people feel unsafe? Why should people be confused? I mean, that was one thing that would just drive me crazy as a student sometimes is when I didn't even know what the professor wanted from me. And I felt like some professors liked it that way. They're like, ah, keep them guessing. And I'm just like, what a fucking power play that is, you know? Sorry for the F-bombs. Someone just uh, commented or sent me an email. I can't remember where the community This is like, stop having, you know, I don't like all the F-bombs. Um, and I'm sure there are people out I, The majority of people don't like cursing <laughs> and cussing. Um, I'm among, uh, me and my close peers do a fair amount of potty mouthing and it, and whenever I interact with people outside of our circle, I'll get faces. And, and so I apologize. I'm going to try not to do it. There, there are times when it's going to come out, but um, it's just hard to say what I want to say sometimes without saying it, but I could probably reduce it. I'm going to try, I'm going to try not, especially certain cuss words, you know, I think God damn it, or, you know, certain kinds of cursing like shit or something, I I think are a little less abrasive than other cursing. Anyway, what was I saying? My point is, is that when instructors feel as though they have to make people feel anxious and that that's just normal for graduate school, I, I completely disagree with that. I, I think that is a power play. It's a, it's basically kind of like hazing. It's like, well, I was terrified when I was in graduate school. So, you know, I'll be damned if my students aren't going to feel just as anxious as I was. And, and I just think, why, you know, uh, especially in, in my field where people could be doing a lot of different things with their privilege and instead uh, and with that privilege and time and money and effort, they're they're dedicating themselves to making the world a better place. Like, why would you want to get in the way of that? Anyway, 
All right, patron Lauren, let me know what you think about that. Um, and again, I'm sorry that your friend uh, completed suicide. It's very sad. And graduate students out there, let me know what you think. Email me co- comments on various different things. Uh, email is contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Also, just some announcements here at the end. Uh, you can turn off the podcast if you don't want to hear announcements. Uh, become a patron. Go to patreon.com. Also, my book is for sale. It's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, available on Amazon. I, I can't tell you I'm not checking every five minutes to see how many books have sold. And I can't tell you that um, I, ha- I haven't rejoiced at every single copy that is sold. Uh, something like 12 or 15 copies have sold so far, which is super cool. And I also can't tell you that I wasn't super happy when an instructor assigned it as required reading for their class and supervision. So that was super cool too. So if you are a supervisor or no, if you're, if you're an instructor of supervisors or you're a student in a supervision class or something, please suggest this book because this is such a niche book in some ways that, um, we need. I need people in supervision training circles to know about this book. Again, multi-role clinical supervision. Also, join the Facebook fan group. I don't go to that fan group. It's run by fans of the podcast, and uh, can um, you can talk about whatever you want there. Also, remember the live event, January 27, 2018. 3 o'clock, Antioch University, Seattle. You can go to the Facebook page, not the fan group, to find out more information about that. Also, join Talkspace. Use the promo code Kirk. It's an online therapy outfit. Uh, you know, if you're curious about it, you just want to try it out for a month, that can be enough to signal to them that it's worth it to them to keep sponsoring the podcast. Also, remember that if you're a $20 patron, you get a mug. And I love the Psychology of Seattle mug. It is I, I, no joke the most comfortable coffee mug that's ever been made. <laughs> Forget the fact that it has Psychology in Seattle stuff plastered all over it, uh, a collage of you know Psychology in Seattle uh, images, but the shape of the handle, the shape of the of the cup, it it's it's this perfect shape <laughs> for for my taste anyway. Um, you, you have you ever had a coffee cup where? Like traditional coffee cups, the handle is this this tiny little ring that you can't even get one finger in. Or if you can, it's just one finger. Try to hold a coffee cup with just one finger in that, in that loop. That's a hard thing to do. What you want, or the handle is only big enough for two or three fingers. What you want is a handle, and I'm reaching for the coffee cup right now, that, that accommodates all four of your fingers. You know what I'm saying? When you pick up a coffee cup, you want that, you want all four fingers to like be able to, you know, you want a, a loop that can accommodate all four of your big manly fingers. <laughs> and, uh, and this cup's got it. And this cup is also tall and not wide, you know, cause some, some coffee cups today are soup. They're like bowls, right? They're super wide. And I find that to be, it's, have you ever tried to drink like, soup from a bowl well it's hard right it sloshes around so so this cup it has this it's the perfect it's not too thin to make it look like a star trek cup but 
uh, it's not so thick that it it obscures your f- entire face as you try to as you try to drink out of it. Um, one of the things that makes a coffee cup perfect for me is I can sip from the coffee and and keep an eye contact with the person I'm talking to. Because <laughs> as a therapist, you know, I'll be talking with clients and occasionally I drink out of coffee. And I, I have this one coffee cup where it's it's my Revolver Beatles album uh, coffee cup. It's so big that when I when I drink out of it, it it obscures my eyes. <laughs> so I temporarily lose eye contact with my clients as I'm as I'm drinking, um, which kind of bugs me anyway. So become a $20 patron. (laughs) Um, when you become a $20 patron, I will send the mug out, uh, at, I can't send the mug out immediately because I, I physically have to pack these mugs myself and then physically go to the post office. There's probably an easier way to do this, but I don't know how. And, uh, I can only do that like every now and then. So, um, so anyway, Go to patreon.com. I want to thank everyone who's already become a patron. Let's uh, let's just thank our newest patrons here. We have, sorting by start date here, we have patron Christopher, patron Kimberly, patron Sasha, patron Eric, patron Jill, and Phil, and Nicholas, and Paul, and Lauren. And was it the same Lauren that emailed me today? I don't know. Uh, Sharon and Raga, Raga, what what country is this from? Uh, Iceland, it looks like. So there is no way I'm going to. I'm just going to call you Rag. How about that? There's no way I'm going to pronounce that name. Uh, Cora and Amara and Joshua and a, a, a Emily. Emily spells it kind of different. Lisa, Dorothy, Elizabeth, Daria. Great names, you guys. Um, especially that Iceland name. Iceland person, tell me how to pronounce that name. Rag, rag here. There's a lot of vowels, and there's one vowel in there that I don't even recognize. It's an O with like a little thing over it. It's not an accent, but like a squirrely Q. Like, it's like the O has like a quaffed, like a Trump haircut. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself, particularly if you're a graduate student, because you deserve it. Thank you.